All right, why don't you turn to Luke chapter 23, please. Luke chapter 23, verse 43. The message is entitled, The Assurance of a Repentant Sinner. Jesus has been um, hanging on the cross as the rulers sneered at him. The soldiers have been mocking him. And the crowds have been blaspheming him. All of this, as his first saying was declared from the cross. It was a prayer for their forgiveness addressed to the Father. Now, Jesus is a different type of person who is dying while being innocent, absolutely. And he's praying for those that are executing him. He is so different than us. And yet he's exactly like us as he became man. 100% God, 100% man. The Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53, 6 tells us. The pleasure of God would prosper in his hand as his soul was being made an offering for sin. Therefore, it pleased the Father, it says, Isaiah 53, 10. The Father, sometimes we don't focus so much on, but he sacrificed his son for us. If you're a parent, if you're a father, just thinking about it would just repulse you and say, I don't think I could do that. Because you know how much you love your son. Through the travail of his soul, he would justify many, Isaiah 53, 11 says. Many not because God didn't include all, but because not all want to be included with God. They reject him. The scriptures declared he would be numbered with the transgressors in Isaiah 53, 12. He was hung between two thieves. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his first coming, many while he was on the cross. The second saying of Jesus from the cross is addressed to one of the thieves, as you know. And he's on the cross, and in response to his petition... Let me read our text here, Luke 23, 43. He says, And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The saying of Jesus is marked by three things. First, you have the proclamation of authority. I say to you. Second, you have the promise of hope. Today, you will be with me. And thirdly, you have the place of comfort in paradise. Not many words, but it's so valuable what has been stated. And we have to remember who's the one that's saying this. One who cannot lie. One who is absolutely the authority over all authorities, as we'll see. Let's begin with the proclamation of authority. Assuredly, I say to you. Notice the proclamation was pronounced from the mouth of the Son of God. I make this emphatic because you may not believe that Jesus is God. The scriptures are very, very clear that he is both God and the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. 
Jesus had been turned over to Pilate by the Sanhedrin because he told them he was the Son of God in Luke twenty two seventy. He said, we don't accuse you of anything, but we accuse you because you made yourself out to be the Son of God. They understood what Jesus was saying all along. He said, before Abraham was, I am. You're not even 50 years old. You, Before Abraham was, I am. I've been from all eternity. And at that time in man's chronological order, I came down and became man. Jesus had prayed to God the Father in the first saying from the cross as God the Son. Because he's the intercessor, he's a mediator, he's a representative of man. As Adam and Eve represented the human race and Adam as the head, so Jesus being the last Adam is representing the human race now. In Adam we all fell, we all sinned, we all have sin nature. We're all destitute from the glory of God. In the last Adam, Jesus Christ, that we're born again, now we're made one with God by the atoning grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus, as the Son of God, was being true to his earthly mission to the very end, even as he's dying one of the most horrible deaths that can be inflicted on a person through crucifixion. The name, as you know, Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. The uh, Hebrew name for Joshua comes from the contraction Yahweh Shua. And the name in the Hebrew Joshua to the Greek is Jesus. In fact, Matthew one twenty one says, Gabriel told Mary, his name shall be Emmanuel. He shall save his people from their sins. Emmanuel means God with us. His reputation was that of being a friend of publicans and sinners in Luke 7.34, it says. Now, when Jesus is said to be a friend of publicans and sinners, he was a friend of publicans and sinners in that he was a light and example in proclaiming the gospel for them to turn from their sin. Don't believe a lot of the teaching that's going on today that you are to be like Jesus, a friend of sinners, so you can drink, you can party, you can do whatever you want to show them that you're human like them. That's not what the gospel teaches. The gospel says that he's our example. And we're light and salt of the earth to minister to others that they turn from their sin. Not to try to show them that we're compatible with their own sin. That's not Christianity. His own words declared he came to seek and to save that which was lost in Luke 9.10. And maybe you're here today or maybe you're over the internet. And you, you just don't agree with that. You believe that you're not a bad person. You're moral, pretty ethical. You pay your taxes. You mow your lawn. And... Uh, you know, you try to do what you can. And although that may be good on man's side, and it's good that you are that good, but none of those good things can ever merit your salvation or your entrance to heaven. Because the Bible is very, very clear that all of us fall short of the glory of God. Because the law demands perfection. 
No one is perfect here. So even if you kept everything and then you ready to die and you stub your toe and you blurt out a big one, you just blew it. All those good works mean nothing. You see, we're accepted by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. His righteousness is imputed to us completely. So as he's come to seek the lost, he is there to reveal that I'm lost. Once I realize I'm lost, then I can call out for help. All of us have been in a place where we're driving somewhere and, you know, we think we're okay. We're en route. I'm positive. I am en route. I am not lost. Until certain things happen or my wife says, hey, didn't we pass that thing before already once? Or No, 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 no. And then all of a sudden when I realize it, then, only then will I say, well, let's ask somebody. Now we have GPS, right? And so, now they put a woman on there because you won't yell at her, right? <laughs> they don't put a man's voice on there because you'll argue with them, right? But your GPS sometimes takes you the wrong way or the long way. I do it all the time. I'm going, she goes, uh, make a left, and I don't weigh, and she goes, got to recalculate, recalculate. I say, you got it, and I'm, I'm just going, you know. It's not until you realize you're lost that you will ask for help. Now, you can be sincere that you're not lost, but it doesn't change the fact that you're lost. Jesus, the Son of God, was the King of the Jews, the Messiah. That's what it said on his plaque in Luke 23, 38. Now you remember that um, the Jews were a little upset. And they came to Pilate and said, you know, don't say he's the king of the Jews, but say he said he was king of the Jews. He says, hey, what's written is written. See, Pilate got back to him because they pressured him to prosecute Jesus. That's what our flesh does. I want my pound of flesh. You do one thing to me, I'm going to get you twice over. That's our sin nature. As Christians, it's still there. But we are able to restrain that by the grace of God if we trust God. If I don't trust God and I don't walk in the Spirit, I will walk in the flesh. It's A or B. There's no C. And so the hope is in being a believer because the potential is in Christ, not in me. See, too many Christians in the church still have their, their hope and their trust in themselves. I can do this. Really? Okay. Got to let you run. Just like when you snag a fish, you give them rope. You'll come to the end of yourself sooner or later. Notice the proclamation was pronounced with an absolute guarantee. Jesus said, I say... As he often stated during his three and a half year of ministry, due to the fact that he never quoted any early, earthly authority. Never did he do that. Now, you and I quote people, and this guy said, that guy said, or whatever, uh, so that we can qualify what we're saying and I'll be, we'll be believable. Classic example is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you have heard that it has been said. And he's talking about all the rabbis and everything else, the commentary of the Talmud and Mishnah and everything else. And he says, now you have heard that it has been said, but I say to you, whoa. That's altogether different. 
This is what they've said, but let me tell you what the truth is. You're going to hear a lot of things as you live through this life. You're going to have come across a lot of philosophies, a lot of religion, a lot of um, educated people that are going to give you all kinds of stuff. Now, if you do not have the word of God, you are unable to sift that to find out if it's truth or lies. The word of God is the plumb line. Once I put myself up against the plumb line, I find out I'm the crooked one. So everything I hear, I have to judge through the word of God to find out if it's truth or error. I can trust every word that Jesus declared as absolute truth. Well, whether I believe it, whether I understand it completely to its full end or not, it doesn't matter, it's still true. Let me give you an algebra problem or trigonometry or whatever, and you may look at it and you, it doesn't make sense to you, but it doesn't change the fact that it's true. You just don't understand it. But it isn't wrong because you don't understand it. Jesus had declared that he and the Father were one. And that he was doing the work of the Father who had sent him to do this. And that he always did what pleased the Father. John 8, 39, 29. Wow. Which one of us can say, I always do what pleases the Father? Which one of us could say, when I grew up, I did everything and everything I did pleased my dad or mom? Please stand up so we can laugh. (laughs) Not one of us. Being God and the Son of God, He cannot lie. Numbers 23, 19 says, God's not a man that He should lie or the Son of Man should repent. Has He not said it? Will He not do it? Yes. Though I may not believe how or understand when or how, it doesn't matter. If he said something, then it will come to pass or it will be absolutely true. Jesus professed, notice his proclamation by the word assuredly. This is the New King James and the Old King James says verily, verily. Um, both communicate surety, trustworthiness and reliability of what is being stated or promised by Jesus. Absolute authority. Now, the Gospel of John uses the phrase in um, a twofold manner. When the word verily, verily, or assuredly, assuredly is in the beginning, it marks the superlative force um, most assuredly. In other words, what I'm about to say is very, very important. Pay attention. If that same word is put at the end of the sentence, it is translated amen or so be it. Indicating that what I have just said is absolutely true. Same word, the grammar position makes all the difference of what it means. In the beginning, it appears 25 times. At the end, it appears two times in John, but 46 times from Romans to the book of Revelation. So there are times there are things that are being said and God says, pay attention. What I'm going to say is very important. It deals with eternal matters. And other times it says, now what I've just said, you can trust it. It's exactly true. Notice the proclamation was pronounced to the condemned thief here. He had been mocking and reviling Jesus with the other thief and the crowds. 
So these two are hanging there, and Jesus is between them. And, and he has equally been not very nice towards Jesus in Matthew 27, 44, and then Mark 15, 32. But he had heard Jesus praying to the Father, the first saying, to forgive his enemies and executioners as he hung on the cross between these two thieves, as Luke 23, 33 through 34 tells us. Now, this man is about to die. And you're about to die. If you've ever been with people that are about to die, they're not worried about if the trash is going to be taken out Tuesday. Everything becomes unimportant except the most crucial things as they enter eternity. He's listening. But he's listening with an open heart in contrast to the other thief, as we'll see. He was able to read the plaque, Jesus, King of the Jews, here in verse 38. So he's looking at Jesus. He's hanging on the cross like him. He looks at the plaque. It doesn't match. Doesn't not dress like a king. Yet it says he's a king. In fact, what he's telling me is that he is a king as he's praying for us and the things he's saying. So the thief had a change of heart here. As many of you did at one time in your life as you came to Jesus Christ. Your intention was never to be born again. Your intention was not to hear the gospel. You went somewhere and you heard it and and the Holy Spirit convicted you and illuminated your heart to see that you were lost and you made a decision for Christ. And you asked him to forgive you. And there was other person right next to you hearing the same gospel right over their head. To themselves, they were saying, when's the guy going to shut up so I can get out of here? The consequences were completely different. The one remained lost and you were saved. The one remained blind and you were able to see. Hmm. Notice the proclamation was pronounced to the thief as the result of his repentance. He heard the other thief blaspheming Jesus there in verse 39. He rebuked the other thief in verse 40. But the other answering rebuking, rebuked him saying, Do you not even fear God seeing you are under the same condemnation? In other words, you're, you're a thief. You're a murderer. You deserve this, really. And he'll tell them later on. But this judgment that we receive is nothing. The ultimate judgment is he's going to have to stand before God. The judgment that a tribunal would give to you or I here on earth is nothing compared to the ultimate judgment of God. He confessed their guilt and their due punishment in contrast to the innocence of Jesus. Listen to him. Verse 41. And he indeed justly, for we have received the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. 
the greatest injustice that has ever been done on the face of this earth in all history was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He was absolutely innocent, had no sin of himself. Wow. Man is a sinner by nature and condemned under God's wrath as his due reward. In fact, Isaiah 64, 6 says that our righteousness is his filthy rags and the word for filthy rag is a menstrual garment. That's how bad our good is, ladies and gentlemen. Now, some of you may not be persuaded of that. But that's your decision, your choice, and God respects and honors your choice. See, every person that rejects Jesus Christ, every person that rejects the Word of God, God honors their choice to go to hell. Now, God doesn't want you to go to hell. In fact, God died so you not go to hell. But if you're determined to go to hell, you're going to have to fight Jesus Christ to the very last breath. It'll break his heart, but he will not force you to go to heaven or be forgiven of your sins. Wow. The heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked above all things, Jeremiah says, 17, 9. You see, our, our sinful heart is like an iceberg. The only thing that shows is the tip of it. The majority is underground. We don't even know the full extent of our depravity, but it's bad. Jesus was without sin. He knew no sin, yet became sin as a substitute for the sinful humanity of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So here it is. I'm sin. Jesus' absolute holiness. And God says, I'm going to take all your sinfulness, put it on my son. I'm going to take, impute his holiness and righteousness on you. Who do you think got the best deal? For what reason? He says, because I love you and I made grace sufficient to make this procedure happen through the death of my son. Wow. He made him be sin. First John 2, 2 says, and he is the propitiation for our sins, not ours alone, but the whole world. The word propitiation goes back to the Old Testament of animal sacrifice. So a person would sin and then go to the priest and he'd bring his little animal and they'd be expected and he'd pass the inspection and then um, he would tie that animal to a pole and then he would lay his hands on the head of that animal. Symbolically, his sins would be transferred to that animal. Then he would grab that animal, grab his neck, pull the neck back and he'd cut his throat. The sinner would cut his throat. Blood would go over him. The lamb would just, pow, hit the ground. And the guy would look down and say, that should have been me. This animal took my place. Every sacrifice was a type of Jesus Christ to come, the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world in John one twenty nine. Wow. The testimony of Jesus was spotless. The Father declared in him he was well pleased over and over again. Matthew 3.17 is one of them. Pilate's wife um, sent a message to him. says, have nothing to do with this righteous man. I suffered much in a dream last night. 
in Matthew 27, 19. But Pilate was on the hot stove. He was on the burner. He was being pressured. And if you look at all the checks, all the opportunities that God gave Pilate to back off, he chose not to. Washing of his hands is meaningless. We always do things to kind of clear our own conscience or to try to give some kind of evidence that we weren't the bad guy. But it doesn't matter, we are. Pilate said, I find no fault in him. It's recorded three times. Luke 23, 14, John 18, 38, and John 19, 4. No fault at all. Judah said, I betray innocent blood in Matthew 27, 4. The only conclusion is that Jesus was not hanging on the cross for himself, but for someone else. Who? The whole of humanity. Not himself. So this was the proclamation of authority. I say to you. Notice, secondly, comes the promise of hope. Today, you will be with me. The promise was for that very day. Mark it well. The phrase today is emphatic in the Greek and it's marked the absolute specific period of time today. It stands in contrast to the Jewish mind regarding the future kingdom of the age to come. The Jewish mindset understood the present age as an evil age. And the age to come was the millennial kingdom when God would come through the Messiah and knock off Rome or whoever was ruling the world and then set up his kingdom. The Jews never saw the church age of grace. That's why the disciples kept asking Jesus, are you now going to restore the kingdom? That's why James and John asked Jesus for the right hand and the left hand when he was going to Jerusalem to sit in his glory and their mommy asked it too. You see, they really believed that Jesus was headed from Caesarea Philippi down to Jerusalem and he was going to knock off Rome, set up the kingdom, and the mother of James and John wanted her two boys to sit on the right hand and the left hand. And Jesus says, are you able to drink of the cup that I'm about to drink? Oh yeah, Lord. So let's, let's assume that Jesus said, okay, John, you're on the right. James, you're on the left. They get to Jerusalem. Jesus gets arrested, just as they did. He gets whipped and everything, and all of a sudden, they're there on the cross. Jesus is hanging in the middle, and James and John on the right and the left. And you hear them go to Jesus, Lord, what, what happened? He goes, what did you have in mind? They wanted to be served. They weren't servants. The dirty dozen were as bad as you and I. But you will partake of this cup later. And all of them died torturous death. Hmm. When Jesus went to Martha, she said about Lazarus, your brother will live again. She goes, oh, Lord, I know that he will live in the last days. No, 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 no. I am the resurrection. What Jesus says we have to believe is absolute truth. Again, the phrase today marked a transition of the economy of God. 
the veil would be rent in two, the Bible says, from the top to the bottom, declaring access to heaven had been made and that all could come to God. Mark fifteen thirty-eight and Luke twenty-three forty-five. Now, the veil of the temple, as you know, the holy place, 15 by 30, the veil, then a 15 by 15 cube. That veil was there all year long, removed only once a year in the Day of Atonement, where the priest would go on the high priest after many sacrifices and washings and the blood and all that, and he would offer the sins of the nation once a year. Now, this veil is torn, and everybody has access to the presence of God because the tabernacle was a picture of the throne in heaven. That's why Moses was told to make it exactly after the pattern. Now, if you were renting the veil, this is how you would rent it. You would be standing before, you would grab it and rip it from where? The bottom to the top. The scripture says it was torn from the top to the bottom. The Father declaring, no more veil. Jew and Gentile, one in Christ Jesus. Through the repentance of depending on Jesus Christ for the atonement. Wow. The final sacrifice for sin would be accepted by the Father. When? That very day. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. The cousin of Jesus. Amazing. They had been schooled for 2,000 years regarding sacrifices. And they missed their Messiah. They missed them altogether. The phrase is a reminder that salvation offered today should never be put off till tomorrow. In fact, Hebrews 4, 7 says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your brain. No, your heart. There's a million miles between your head, your brain, and your heart, ladies and gentlemen. Some people say, well, I just can't believe that I'm educated. You're not that smart. You really aren't. You're just evil. That's the problem. We don't want to give up our sin and our lame excuses for what we do and why we do it. So the heart is the problem. The doctors have a medical term. They call it a murmur. <laughs> it's a heart problem. A murmur is, you can't really discern what they're What? You know, if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. Your kids, right? You call it, oh, no, no, nothing, nothing. We keep going, right? Problem with the heart. The promise was to um, a condemned thief. The thief, by faith, had believed the words and the authority of Jesus despite the circumstances. He called him Lord here in verse 30, 42. Lord. It's not the congenial conditions. It's not control. It's, it's, this is blood and guts. Jesus was condemned by Pilate as they um, declared him to be guilty. Isaiah says he was numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53, 12. He's hanging between two thieves, yet he was completely innocent. Jesus was being mocked, reviled, and blasphemed by all. Jesus was being overcome by his enemies, so it seemed. 
Jesus was abandoned by his 12 apostles. One betrayed him, the others fled. Jesus was wearing a crown of thorns, not the crown of a king. Jesus was not saving himself, yet he said he was God able to save others. A perplexing, seeming contradiction. Jesus was nailed to a cross, weak and about to die. And this thief is ready to make a decision that's going to affect his eternity. Isaiah again says, the travail of his soul, he would justify many through his birth and life. Isaiah 53, 11. The last Adam. Notice the thief by faith prayed to Jesus when he said, remember me. He trusted only the words that Jesus was saying. Had nothing to do with his feelings, nothing with his emotions, nothing with the circumstances, with nothing else. It was all based on what Jesus said. If you entrust yourself solely to the words of Jesus, you're safe. But if you entrust yourself and you think you're a Christian based on anything but the words of Jesus, you may not be. It's cultural. It's emotional. It's what's best for you. Remember me, he said. So his faith was great and genuine, contrary to the unbelief of the crowds that was influencing others in unbelief. You see, the greatest sin is not adultery, drunkenness, fornication. The greatest sin is unbelief. Where God says, I love you, I sent my son to die for you, and you do not believe it, and you're actually spitting in God's face. Unbelief is the greatest sin. That's why people end up in hell. Unbelief. His faith was great and genuine, preceding the miraculous signs. The darkness at 12 p.m. The veil being rent. The confession of the centurion. Truly, this was the Son of God. These things have not happened. So he's solely basing it on the words of Jesus. That's why it's important that you understand God's word. You study God's word so that your faith stands solely on God's word. Not your emotions. Not your feelings. Not your opinions. Not in the subjective, nauseating culture that we live in. His faith was great and genuine, void of special favor or position, solely based on the words of Jesus. Jesus offers salvation to the poor, to the thief, to the king, whoever. Whoever will repent. And so the thief, by faith, believed Jesus had a kingdom. Verse 42 Yet his kingdom was not visible. Yet his kingdom was not fighting on his behalf. But he believed him. You see, the promise was that he would be with Jesus. Jesus assured him of his petition, giving him living hope. Yet he's dying. Jesus assured him of his sins being forgiven, resulting 
in fellowship with God. Because sin impedes our being one with God. It's like a sink being clogged up. The water can't get through. As Christians, if we're in sin and we don't confess our sins to the Lord, we're out of fellowship. It's like going on the freeway on your cell phone and you go through a hole and you drop that call like a bad habit. Not until you get connections can you hook up again, right? So I confess my sin, I acknowledge my sin and he forgives me and I'm in fellowship. But I don't ever presume thinking that I don't have to confess or that everything's good. You can take your phone on, make believe you're talking, but no one's on the other end. Now, I may think you're talking. I'm not being deceived. You are. To me, it doesn't matter. Your phone call doesn't affect me. It's self-deception in many ways. Jesus assured him of his complete dependency on him. Today, you will be with me. Wow. This was the promise of hope. Today, you will be with me. Notice thirdly and last, he has a place of comfort. In paradise. The place of comfort was identified with um, privilege. The word paradise is a Persian word. Um, uh, the Iranians are Persians. It changed in the 60s to Iran. Okay? But it's the Persians. And it's a Persian word signifying a royal garden, a park enclosed with all the amenities and grass and beautiful trees and water and everything else. In fact, this word is used for the Garden of Eden in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. The king would allow only those who he desired to honor to walk with him, to be in fellowship with him. This is the word right here for paradise. The place of comfort is the abode of men and women in faith in the scriptures called the bosom of Abraham or the bosom of the Father. In fact, we only knew in the Old Testament before the New Testament that both the righteous and the unrighteous, when they died, they went to Sheol or the grave. And there was a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous, those that died in faith, those that did not die in faith, but we didn't know any specifics of where it was or how. It isn't until we come to Luke 16 when Jesus speaks about the rich man and Lazarus that died, both of them. And um, don't let anybody tell you that that's a parable. Jesus never used personal names in parables. He is expanding and giving the details of those who died prior to the cross, the location and the circumstances. As you know, reading Luke 16 from 19 to 31, it was a twofold compartment. On this side were those in torment, on this side were those being comforted. In fact, it's called the bosom of Abraham, the place of comfort, and paradise. All three identify the one side. The other is the place of torment. The rich man says, Father Abraham, um, dip your finger in water that may cool my tongue. And the response was, those that are on your side can't come here, and those on this side can't go there. You had everything in life. 
He said, but I have brothers. Can you send someone from the dead to warn them? He says, if they do not believe the prophets, Moses and the prophets, they will not believe anyone, even if they came back from the dead. Wow. So you have two compartments. Those who died were comforted in paradise. Those who died apart from faith were in torments. Now, don't think that God loves to torture people. No. Whoever ends up on the bad side, separate from God, is by the rejection of God while they live. Anybody who gives you hope of eternal life or going to heaven after you die is a deceiver and a liar. You make your reservation before you leave, even on vacation, right? <laughs> How much more heaven? The scriptures were the source of their faith in God. Not mere belief in God, in Moses and the prophets. Jesus said to the rich man that if they didn't believe Moses and the prophets, they would not believe someone that comes back from the dead. How many times have you heard people say, well, you know, my mother, my grandma, they came back. They show Listen, once you die, you cannot come back. You do not come back. Now, Satan and his demons can impersonate people to deceive you. But if you know the word of God, you know they're demons. It's not granny. Okay? It's deception. Okay? Notice the place of comfort was going to be transferred to heaven now then. Okay? So we know where paradise was before the cross. Now after the cross, we get in a different picture. First Peter three nineteen through 20 tells us that Jesus, as he gave up his last breath and died, he descended to the lower parts of the earth and he preached to the captives, the captives down there, both the believers and the non-believers. And then he who first descended, then ascended up far above all things. Ephesians chapter 4, 8, 9 says. And Colossians 2, 15 says that he led captivity captive and he made a public spectacle or display of the demonic forces that could not hold him or prohibit him from emptying the place of paradise, the bosom of the Father, the place of comfort, to take those who died in faith to heaven. So there was a transfer of paradise to the third heaven where God dwells. Paul the Apostle, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2 and 4. Remember, he says, I knew a man in Christ about 13 years ago, whether in the body, out of the body, I don't know. He was caught up to the third heaven, to paradise. He uses them synonymously. And there I heard things not lawful to be uttered. So now, paradise is in the third heaven and where God dwells. You have three heavens. The heavens where the birds fly, the stellar heaven, and the third heaven where God dwells. And so now what happens is that when a believer, a Christian dies, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8 says that he or she is instantly present before the Lord. Instantly. The person who dies without Jesus Christ is instantly present now, not a twofold compartment, only one compartment. We usually call that hell. Okay? It's not the final abode. 
that will be emptied out, thrown to the lake of fire after the white throne judgment. This is just being held until you're sentenced. Like the judge pronounced you guilty and you go to jail. Then they're going to bring you back for sentencing. Well, right here is just waiting. At the white throne judgment, everybody who is in hell is brought up and they're sentenced for all they've done in the lake of fire. Now, if there are degrees of reward in heaven, ladies and gentlemen, there must be degrees of punishment because God is absolutely just and holy. Okay? And so, now, you are instantly present. You're never found naked, Second Corinthians 5, 1 through 8 says. So the minute you die, you're instantly present before the Lord. Your body goes to the ground. So you die today. They bury you tomorrow. Your body goes to the ground. But the minute you die today, you're instantly present. So you go before the Lord. Your body is in the grave. And next week, the rapture happens. The Lord comes for his church. Those who are alive are caught up. The bodies are caught up with them. And you're coming down and you get joined to your glorified body. All right? Very, very clear in the scriptures. So now paradise is in the third heaven. And so the Spirit of God in 2 Corinthians 2.17, Jesus says, The Spirit of God promised to the overcomer to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. That's one of the rewards to those who are overcomers, faithful to the Lord. D.L. Moody said um, that one of his greatest mistakes he ever made occurred October the 8th of 1871. On that night, he addressed the largest crowd he had ever spoken to in Chicago. His message dealt with the trial of Jesus on Pilate Hall and was based on the text, What then shall I do with Jesus? He concluded the sermon by saying, Quote, I wish you would take this text home with you and seriously consider it. And next Sunday, we will speak on the cross and we will decide what we should do with Jesus. Speaking of this incident later, Moody called it a tragic error and one of the greatest mistakes of my life. For I never saw that congregation again. When the sermon was finished... He asked Mr. Sankey to sing, Today the Savior Calls, almost prophetically to the third verse. It rounds like this. Today the Savior calls for refuge fly. The storm of justice falls and death is nigh. It was the last song in that hall. While the Chicago fire would claim a thousand of those lives. That is why I never teach without giving an altar call presenting the gospel. Because I don't know if this is your first time or your last time. Only God knows. And God will hold me responsible if I don't tell you how to get to heaven. The prayer of the thief from the cross was assured by Jesus and it teaches us some important things. First, the thief is a picture of those who are accepted by God in the 11th hour, plucked as a branch out of the fire. I believe in 11th hour conversions, but I don't believe they're the rule. I believe they're the exception. You usually die the way you live, 
Most decisions are made by young people, not older people. My grandmother in Mexico came to know the Lord in her late 60s. She was an incredible miracle. (laughs) Salvation is the greatest miracle you will ever know. The thief on the cross is a warning to those who would pass up the opportunity to accept Christ, hearing the gospel for the first time or the last time. But again, God allows you to exercise your free will. The thief on the cross reminds all of mankind of the mercy and grace of God that is extended to the vilest of sinners by grace through faith for repentance. Regardless of what you have committed, regardless of what you've been involved in, regardless of what has been done to you, God says that he forgives you for your sin and he makes you whiter than snow. Why whiter than snow? Because every snowflake is wrapped around a speck of dust. Every snowflake has a dirty heart, just like you. Whiter than snow, Psalm 51 says. Now, you cannot undo sin. You cannot reduce sin. You cannot go back. All that can be done with sin is to be forgiven. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not Allah. Not Buddha. Not Krishna. Not Mary. Not Peter. The blood of Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen. Hmm. thief on the cross, both of them are a picture of two men entering eternity through death to live on into eternity. Both equally distant from Jesus Christ hearing the same words. The one rejecting, being condemned, and separated from God for all eternity. While the other repenting being forgiven and being joined to God for all eternity. What about you? Where will you spend eternity? Would you dare gamble to stand before God and say, you know, put me on the balances. I think I'll do okay. Or do you believe the words of Jesus that all fall short of the glory of God? And that he loved you so much that he emptied himself of his glory. Took on the form of a servant. Humbling himself. And became obedient to the death of the cross. And for that reason, a name has been given to him above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know why? Because Jesus took back something to heaven. He didn't have when he came. 100% man. He sits at the right hand of the Father. 
100% man with all the wounds, 100% God. And he takes the hand of man, the hand of the Father, and his blood joins us together. When he comes back, he'll come in his glorified body with those same wounds. Wow. Where can you get an offer like that, ladies and gentlemen? This was a place of comfort in paradise. And so the second saying of Jesus is marked by these three things. Not many words. Boy, they're valuable and filled with absolute truth. The proclamation of authority, I say to you. The promise of hope today, you will be with me. The place of comfort in paradise. We pray that you would repent from your sins if you don't know him. Maybe you're over the internet. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. We thank you for just your grace and your love for us, Lord, and the way you made salvation, Lord, that no one can boast, and you get all the glory. And yet, Lord, we get the benefit that we can find nowhere else. So, Lord, we pray for everyone who's here and those who are looking over the Internet, that you would speak to their hearts. And those who don't know you, Lord, that you would just allow them to see their need of you, that they would call on your name. And so we lift them to you even now, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. But you get to choose. If you believe that you're a sinner... And you need to be forgiven of your sins. And that Christ died for you and paid that price for your sin. That is the miracle of God. That is the work of the Spirit to convict you. Now you alone can ask Him to forgive you. No one can do it for you. If you want to be born again, this is your prayer repentance. And God will hear you just like He heard that thief at the cross. This is your prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.